Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Exert Podcast. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by Armando. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Stephen Chung. Hey, everyone. And in today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking about building your training load and, and building that training load with XSS. Um, now, Stephen, uh, traditionally, cyclists like to quantify the amount of training that they're, they're doing. So um, in your experience as a cyclist, what have been some of the different ways that you've been quantifying uh, your training load in the past? Well, there's definitely lots of different ways. We, if we start out with Eddie's training idea of, you know, ride lots, but it's all about time. It's all about time or kilometers or miles and just ride long, long, long time. And that's really how one way to quantify it is with distance and another way is with time. But, you know, as you know, riding here in in southern Ontario and Niagara where I live where it's really flat one kilometer is different from or a 50 kilometer ride here is quite different and much shorter than when I was out in sabbatical in Kelowna this past year where it's a lot more hills and 50 kilometers takes a lot more time so you know and you've seen it too Scott it's Mm -hmm. do you go by Speed, not always, because also there can be winds. There could be headwinds, tailwinds. So distance kind of, or even average speed is kind of not really the best way. Traditionally, I think Mm -hmm. most people go by hours because, you know, an hour of training, whether you're, you're climbing or, or at one, at the same wattage or at the same intensity as riding on the flats, theoretically is the same so I mean you get a little bit more nuance beyond that but mm-hmm. yeah certainly traditionally there's distance or or else there's duration and mm-hmm. I guess the challenge when you're trying to quantify all of those is again is an hour of riding on the flats the same as an hour of climbing probably not right and that's where the power meter really came in right Mm -hmm. it's it's not just a way to kind of measure your power directly but a way to help quantify those differences right because now instead of measuring uh okay how how long was i in 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 this heart rate zone we can actually measure how much work you're performing and so i know if i did a, a 50 kilometer ride in the flats it burned whatever 1600 uh, kilojoules of energy and if I do a 50 kilometer ride up in Kelowna up in the mountains and I burn 2000 kilojoules we know that those two rides are going to be different uh, but I think one of the challenges with with now taking this power meter data is how do we analyze it in a meaningful way that that allows us to quantify um, both how much we're working and how hard yeah and there are also different ways in addition to duration and also to a distance the other way to try to get a measure of overall intensity is the idea of quantifying by heart rate and since the mid 80s when when uh kind of commercial heart rate monitors became available starting for the mass public when polar started using them or selling them then you could start quantifying based on both duration and also kind of heart rate as an idea of intensity and zones, yeah, yeah and, and that's where you get different zones of of efforts and you can start weighting them differently and you know that's kind of your body's response and that is one really good way but 
the other way to incorporate is with power also and that's again the advantage of power meter is that whether you're riding in a sense uphill or on the flats 150 watts is 150 watts so it tries to take that kind of um, difference in terrain difference in kind of the style of riding out of the equation by just saying in essence a watt is a watt is a watt so mm-hmm. that's kind of become the newest way in the last 20 years since power meters have really become readily available for most cyclists to try to quantify them again whether it's by different zones of power but try to weight them all and at and the amount of time you spend at each one and come up with an overall intensity so a lot of the ways that have been traditionally done in different models now is again take a kind of an average or a smoothed out power for however long you rode for and then and then multiply that by the amount of time and say that is the amount of stress that you have accumulated over so we try to do it a little bit differently much more precisely and much more individualized with our model of exert strain score so Armando tell us a little bit about it yeah that's that's really the the key right is that you're we've gone from just measuring just you know time and distance and then we said okay and you know we went to heart rate which is time in zones how much time are you spending in the various heart rate zones and then you have um, power and the biggest difference with between power and heart rate is that uh, heart rate is not really that responsive so if you're doing really hard efforts um, you, they tend to get lost with heart rate, so you're not getting all of the the subtleties and the differences between all the various efforts. And so, power meters really provided a way to get all highly precise information, much more precise than you get with with heart rate. Um, but I think what's what's happened is there's been an attempt to kind of again make all this power data and just make it really simple and linear and say, okay, how much overall training have we got? Right. Mm-hmm. So how do we quant- how do we create a single dimension of training load? Right. And how do we account for both volume and intensity in these single measures? And that's been the traditional approach. Right. And that's really where where we differ. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that we've we've created a metric called XSS, but XSS is really three numbers. We add them mm-hmm. together to give you XSS, but XSS is really three numbers. And it's a way to quantify looking at your data second by second, say, how much work are you performing or let me correct myself, how much strain are you getting on a per second basis across three different systems? So, so it's, it's gone, you know, two newer layers of kind of a quantification of overall training. Right. It's first off, it's accounting for how much work you're performing under fatigue that becomes strain. And then it says in that process, how much of that strain applies to three different systems. So we're getting not just how much work you're doing, but how much strain you're doing. And then we're also saying it's not just total strain. We're separating them into three different components. So when you, and when you add these all up over a period, you now have three separate training loads. So it's a really different perspective. We're not trying to give you one number that represents all of your training. We're saying 
Yeah, all of your training is really adding up into these three overall training loads. Now, I've noticed that you mentioned strain only is increasing as a measure of work performance. So that means that the, the time that it takes to accumulate that strain is, is irrelevant then. Uh, correct. Only insofar as you may be fatigued or unfatigued during the process, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always say, you know, don't ever, don't ever let good fatigue go, go on, uh, you know, go away wasted, right? Because if you're going to, your MP is coming all the way down and you're really, really tired, well, yeah, well, the the system is going to give you more credit. So if you pedal at 200 watts with MPA at 400, you get more strain. You get more credit for that than if you did the 200 watts at you know peak power uh, MPA, right? So that's that's the difference. That's what strain does, right? It gives you more credit when you're doing work under fatigue. Yeah. So that's uh, if you look at one particular workout or one interval, let's say four by four minute type of workout what's unique about our strain score our xss is that it's it knows that the first 10 15 seconds of that four minute effort is relatively easy because you're not fatigued yet whereas the last 30 seconds of that four minutes that last 15 seconds you're trying to hold that same wattage and it's incredibly hard because you are under fatigue so we're giving you more credit. credit in a sense for right. that last 30 seconds of effort than we are for the first. Whereas with most traditional ones, it would just take, well, what's your average power over those four minutes? Let's say it's 300 watts. Okay, mm-hmm. well, we're going to give you the same stock credit for whether it's that first 15 seconds or the last 15 seconds. And that's why if you look at those traditional models, uh, you know, you can't by definition get more than a hundred units of right. of stress over time. And Whereas we can, because you can accumulate much more strain if you are doing it under fatigue. So you can get much more than a hundred units of XSS per hour. You know, order matters, mm-hmm. right? So we show that in some of our blogs, where you know you, you do a you do a zone five effort, right? And then you try, try and hold on to threshold. Uh, that's hard, right? You're really, you're going to struggle. You're going to be miserable trying to do that. You do the inverse, it's not that bad, right? So you hold, you hold threshold for a few minutes and then try to do a, you know, a zone five effort. Yeah, it's, gonna, it's not going to be too bad. You're going to be able to cope with that a little bit easier. So with Exert, Exert picks that up, right? We say, oh, you've done, you're doing this effort under fatigue. Well, you're going to get more credit for it. We know it's going to be harder. You know, that's, that's going to be more beneficial to your training in the end than the opposite, right? Um, and if you're looking at averaging, you miss that. You don't really get that during mm-hmm. averaging, right? If you, uh, um, if you just normalize all the power, it doesn't really matter what order you do it in, in mm-hmm. fact, right? So, so that's kind of where we're different is we, we do, we don't use averaging. Um, we look at second by second data. If you stop pedaling, you get, you don't get credit, right? There's no averaging. You don't get credit for, for leaving your garment on during your stop. You know, there's no inflation of the strain score and exert. It doesn't happen, right? You got to earn that training. You got to earn it, right? Yeah. And if, you know, and if you do really short, sharp efforts, like five second efforts, you're going to get credit for all of those, right? So just because you're, you're stopping and starting in a crit and you kind of see your average power is kind of okay, right? And if you normalize it, it still looks okay. 
But in exert, yeah, you could end up with numbers well above 100 even in terms of strain score. Mm -hmm. So um, some of those things that you typically will miss when using the old traditional methods now sort of become a little bit more, you know, we get to shine a light on them a little bit more with exert. Yeah, so as, a, as an experiment, if listeners want to, go out and try that. Try doing kind of in a sense the, the, a pyramid interval where you go from short intervals up to longer intervals or go do them reverse, you'll, you'll feel quite different mm -hmm. uh, if you are trying to, depending on the order, whether you go from, from short intervals where you do all-out sprints first and then you try to, try to have longer efforts afterwards or when you come back, it's relatively easier if you are doing a a um, you know two minute effort and then a one minute and then a thirty seconds. Whereas if you try to go thirty seconds all out and then try to minute and then two minutes, it's quite a different sensation. Mm -hmm. So again, the average power if you average it all out may be this you know kind of the same, but I can guarantee you the feel of it, and that's where XSS really takes it into account the order in which you've done an effort. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I love that. That's one of the features that really brought me to exert in the first place. Is it, it seems so intuitive that the, the order in which I perform work does matter. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's something that I really liked with the last, one of the last web updates that we had. We, we totally overhauled the charts, uh, mm -hmm. so we brought them finally in, in beautiful uh, color. Mm -hmm. And what you'll notice now, if, if you look at either the workout designer or one of your activities, is you'll actually see a number uh, XSSR. And so what this is going to indicate is really how fast you're able to accumulate that strain. And so when your MPA is fully recovered, you'll see that uh, the line will be very light pink mm -hmm. or light purple. And what will happen is as you increase that rate at which you're putting strain on the body, so as the workout gets kind of harder, you'll notice that the MPA is going to decrease, but also the, the color of the line is going to shift towards like a black color. Mm -hmm. uh, indicating that the rate at which you're putting this this strain on your body is increasing, and, you, and the color of the power changes too, right? Mm -hmm. So the power, you know, you may start off as yellow, and then you know, and it's flat, and then as your MPA starts to come down, it gets darker and darker and darker red. Even though your power hasn't changed at all, you're seeing the effect, right? If you ever put a, a 20 minute test, for example, in the software, you'll see you'll see how your power is constant, but the color of the power actually changes. And gets darker red as you as you as you uh, f you know complete that effort. So it's again we're reflecting the fact that you're there is more strain, right? We're showing that there's more strain for the equivalent power as your MPA starts to decline, and that gets gives you credit, right? Gives you credit in, as improving your fitness when you can do more of that. All right, so that's kind of XSS from a single ride perspective. Mm -hmm. But now, uh, really the goal of what we want to talk about today is training loads. So how does that XSS really translate into, into a training load, and, and how does Exert handle that? So, um, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of this has to do with just how do you measure, um, how do you measure the overall training. And... Uh, um, just in terms of the quantification of the overall training load, just trying to think of more like along the terms of how do you account for things like additional volume, right? So mm -hmm. you want to have lots and lots of volume in your training, right? But then how do you cor correctly account for different intensity 
All right. So this sort of combination of volume and intensity, how's that, how's that mapped out, right? There's lots of, you know, even discussions about, you know, should you be training with more volume or should you be training with more intensity, right? Which one's going to give you the most improvement? Well, in, in exert it kind of, it becomes a little bit more, you know, mathematical. It's like we give a way to calculate this, right? We say, oh, so you can, you can add more volume. You make your training loads. You make your, your low training load really, really high. So, you know, we've got, we have three ways to carve up your XSS, low, high, and peak. Mm-hmm. So we carve up every strain, every jewel strain that you create, we carve it up into, into three zones. And then we add those up, right, over a period of time. So you say, okay, you know, if I look at on a daily basis, how much average daily XSS am I doing? So that could be a way to kind of mentally kind of imagine what your training training load would be. So if you're like every do if you're doing 60 XSS of, of training load every day, right, on average, then you expect your training load to be somewhere around 60. So that's conceptually how you would you would see it. Mm-hmm. But we've also split that up into parts, right? So 60 might be 50 of low, it might be, you know, 8 of high, and it might be 2 of peak, right? So you're spending a little, little time doing kind of peak work, a little bit of time, more time doing high-intensity work, but the bulk of it is still low intensity. So, so those are the numbers that you can now control through volume and intensity. So if you start to increase your intensity, right? You can see your high and your peak number start to go and get larger and become a greater proportion of your training load, right? If you start doing a lot of volume, you expect to see that your low intensity training load will start to increase. Yeah, and that's when polarity ratio really comes in where you can get an idea of just how much of that split is there without trying to, you know, kind of look at each individual work out how much high energy, how much uh, low energy, how much peak energy, you can just, by looking at the polarity ratio, you can say, okay, well, roughly this much is low and the rest is, you know, somewhere in the higher peak. So it gives you a nice, easy way to uh, look at that quickly. Right, exactly. So, you know, the ways and you, you can certainly use the polarity ratio as a way to kind of gauge and get, you know, how much of it is low and high in peak. Um, but then we've also talked, you know, we talk about the focus durations, right? And things like that, which get even more advanced in terms of identifying what those ratios mean between those, those training loads and how they impact your ability to perform. So I think that's an interesting point and, and, uh, kind of talking about focus. So it's possible for two athletes, both to have a training load of, let's say 75, but not necessarily have the same low, high and peak distribution. That's right. Okay. Right. So, so training load, uh, it does provide the total training load provides it an insight of the, maybe the volume, but then how it's distributed is, is kind of capturing that intensity or. Right. And, and that's been the biggest knock of a lot, you know, a lot of the traditional methods, right? You get, you get a training load, you really don't know what it's made up of, right? You know, was it, was it junk miles or was it high intensity, right? It's just a number, mm-hmm. right? So if you you get a, you get a stress score of 200 during a ride, well, you know, did you smash yourself or did you just ride a really long time? Well, we don't know. It's just a number, right? And if you keep adding those up and you get a training load, you really don't know what it's made up of. And, and so therefore it becomes really difficult to understand how that training is going to impact your fitness. So you, you know, you, again, you get a general idea, 
mm-hmm. but it's it's a very blunt instrument for getting at, for really identifying how it's going to impact your ability to perform. And you really don't get an insight on how intensity is playing any role. Correct. With that, you just have a total measure. It's, of it's just a total measure, right? Whereas if we split it up into pieces, we can say, oh, this is this is volume. Your volume is is your low intensity. You've mm-hmm. got to have lots of volume to increase that. Um, a lot of that's governed because of the, the actual time constants. So what a time constant is, is, is how quickly does your training load increase or decrease over time as you train? So if you have these longer time constants, all that really means is that it takes a long time to build it and it takes a long time for it to start to, to decline. Whereas if your time constants are short, you can build up that fitness relatively quickly, but then it goes away really quickly. And we all kind of know that. Like there's certain things we can do, right? You do with some high intensity VO2 work, you know that I can, I can, I can boost up my, my ability to perform really quickly, right? But it goes away really quickly. Whereas, you know, if you're looking to really build your aerobic base, it takes a long time. And so in the software, we, we do that through different time constants, right? And that's why from a purely mathematical sense, you do base training, right? Because base training takes the longest time for it to build. It's the longest time constant. So you do that first, right? To really build up your low intensity training load and then you can start to trade off some of that low intensity training load and the time you've invested in that to now invest in your high and your peak intensity training loads so that you can be best prepared for your event. And what you can often see, in fact, with, with athletes that are doing a lot of training is that their, their low intensity training load starts to increase and they maximize it. But then as soon as they let off the gas and start to trade off for, you know, during the build or the peak phase, they'll see, they could see even a decline in that low intensity training load. So, and that's, they need that in order to tr- use that time to perform their intensity training which then, you know, requires more recovery and there's a whole these impacts associated with doing more high intensity that you don't get when you're doing the low intensity work. Yeah, if everybody has an upper limit of their training load that they can really get to and a lot of it is limited by time. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, I know I find in terms of my overall training load, my peak, I'm right at around 90 95 kind of thing and I can't really sustain more than that because my university will fire me eventually (laughs) for taking too much time and too many sabbaticals but I find you know that's about my upper limit and and in terms of hours it's maybe equivalent to about 14 hours a week and I can't really afford more time so it it plateaus and and that's completely okay because again coming up to cyclocross season I don't necessarily need that amount of massive aerobic base i'm trying to trade that workload or that training load of 90 i might still be trying to keep it at 90 but i'll be trying to distribute it towards more of these high intensity efforts and there might be might be the volume itself in terms of number of hours might actually be less but the intensity is more and therefore also in essence the recovery is needs to be more too so that's where we're quantifying your training load by xss is much better it gives you much more nuance than 
than just a number of hours because you can suddenly see again in the peak of the season we all hear people tapering and you're reducing volume and a little bit of intensity but you know if you just calculate by hours or duration or or distance you'll see that drop dramatically you may think oh my goodness i'm getting less fit no that's not actually the case right if you do a proper taper or if you distribute your training differently and that's that's so true right and i think we try and lump everything into kind of one category should we be doing more volume should we be doing more intensity well we all know it, it the answer is it depends but really, no one's really kind That's of... That's a safe answer for everything. <laughs> but we don't really know. And so you, you, there's still our people arguing over which one's going to work. Well, in exert, there's no arguments. You know, there's no which one is better. It becomes really simple. Depends on who you are. What's your starting signature? What's your starting training loads? What, what can you do within your you know, reasonable amount of time within the time you have available? And what are you targeting to do? All those things will then say this is the right mix of volume and intensity for you to get the best out of your training. And that becomes, it becomes a really simple, uh, or not so much simple, but it becomes a really logical way of kind of addressing and answering that question. There's no ambiguity of what a particular athlete needs to do. And that's all calculated for you. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. So the other aspect of, of kind of XSS that I want to that I want to talk about mm-hmm. today, and it's something that goes hand in hand with with the strain score, is difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you be able to shed some light to our users on on how is this difficulty, uh, how is this derived? So um, uh, we often get this question if people come back and say, you know, I rode for an hour and I got two hundred and fifty XSS. How's that possible? I thought its maximum I could get would be 100, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked a little bit about that, about how... Pardon us here. Sorry about that interruption, folks. <laughs> we thought we had all of our, our cell phones off here. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, we, we've... Um, so difficulty score. Sorry about that, Scott. Let me get back on track here. <laughs> difficulty score. So um, you're right. So you've got the capacity to do more than 100 XSS in a given hour with an exert. And so that is really the key. Um, and that's because you can do workouts under fatigue, right? And mm-hmm. those workouts under uh, that work under fatigue is going to generate more than 100 XSS Per hour, so if you were to do a certain effort and hold that effort, which is generating, you know, three or four hundred XSS per hour, you can conceivably have some really, really high numbers, right? So um, we don't assume that you can only do a hundred XSS per hour, right? It's mm-hmm. been calibrated that way. So that's one thing we did early on is say, okay, we're going to calibrate it a hundred XSS per hour, because people are somewhat familiar with that, not with that notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that if you do one hour at threshold, you're going to get 100 XSS. So that's just still the same. But if you do 100 XSS under fatigue for an hour, which is technically feasible, you're going to get way more than 100, right? And you have, you got a lot of people that do that, right? So you hear these stories, you know, when it comes to doing time trials. What's the first rule of time trial? Yeah, don't go out too hard, mm-hmm. right? And why is that? Well, because you're just going to have a hard time maintaining your power, right? It's just, mm-hmm. you're going to become, you're going to suffer. 
And that's where this difficulty score and this whole thing about XSSR, that's where it comes into play. Because if you go out too hard in a, in a time trial, what's going to happen is MPA is going to come down and you're going to have to do the rest of that, that time trial under fatigue. And you're gonna, your strain is going to go, you're going to get much higher strain. It's going to create more difficulty scores. So you're going to see your difficulty score increase. Uh, and it just means it's going to be miserable, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't, so the difficulty score um, is a way to kind of quantify how much of the strain, how much impact is that having you at a given point in time. So, you know, we, we'd originally looked at it as being more of like an average. So what would your average XSS be per hour? Um, that didn't work out all that well because, you know, you could do one hour at 200 XSS and then the next four hours at 50 XSS and overall the average would be really low, right? So you didn't think it was a too difficult of an effort. But the first hour at 200 XSS was, was deadly. Mm -hmm. So since we felt that, that the kind of pure averaging, which is why, again, what's always been done is pure averaging. We, we didn't see that working well. So we went with this kind of exponentially weighted average, you know, getting into mathematical concepts. But basically all that means is that we, we kind of accumulate this difficulty as you ride. So the more harder you go, the more your difficulty starts to accumulate. And if you keep holding and repeating and going over and doing these repeated hard efforts, your difficulty is going to get really, really high. You've, we've seen people like Dr. Chung here is really famous for getting over 200 on some of his difficulty scores, which is which is really rare, but it is possible. Uh, and all it means is that your XSS, you're just you're just driving a lot of XSS in a very short period of time. Yeah, and those really come under workouts or rides or races where you spend a lot of time fatigued and under strain, and you're trying to hold it. It's much harder to do if. You're just doing a number of short sprints over and over again. It's it's uh, the races where I get those really high difficulty scores, and I always love uh, sending them to Armando or just shocking <laughs> him. But it's uh, yeah, it's the Tuesday night club races in St. Catharines where it's on a flat circuit, about three kilometers, four corners, and I'm just hanging on for dear life. I'm not usually the one attacking, but I'm just trying to chase back on when uh, people start attacking over and over and over again and the difficulty score is ridiculously high because I spend so much of that time under fatigue I'm not recovered fully before the next attack goes so yeah those are the efforts where you can generate the really high difficulty scores I also just want to correct the record earlier you said Armando that the first rule of time trials is to uh, not go out too hard mm -hmm. the first rule is actually show up on time <laughs> and not do a Pedro Delgado 1989 uh, mm -hmm. where he he was late by about two minutes and 40 and mm -hmm. before he got to the start of the prologue in the first stage yeah <laughs> so the second rule is, is don't that... go out too hard oh, okay gotcha <laughs> So I think uh, mm -hmm. something else that you'll notice about difficulty is that there's definitely some mental aspect to it. Um, I know uh, it's much easier for me, at least, to, to get a really high difficulty score when I'm racing or when I'm riding with friends. Like it's, you, there's other people to hang on to. You're not so much focused on how much pain you're in, mm -hmm. uh, but you're, mm -hmm. you're focused on dropping your buddy or trying to hang on for dear life. And, and so I think there's a big impact of, 
uh, I think there's a loose correlation, I should say, between uh, your mental toughness and the difficulty score. Absolutely. You know, in fact, I you know, talked to a lot of coaches um, and they really like that difficulty score. Uh, it's something that they evaluate with all their athletes that they're coaching. And in fact, intentionally look for ways in which we, how, how can we increase their ability to handle, you know, additional difficulty? And I think you could argue that's the marker of a great, a great athlete, a great cyclist, is someone who's willing to put themselves through the ringer and really do things under an extreme amount of duress and discomfort. Um, that's reflected in your difficulty score. So if you're one that can't get over 100, yeah, you know, you, you could still be, you could still have great numbers, right? And you can still have a fantastic threshold. Uh, but, you know, when push comes to shove, you're, you need to do, be able to do better because in a race, there's going to be other people who have the same numbers as you, right? Uh, the same threshold as you, you, you have, but they're prepared to really put themselves through a lot more discomfort than you are. And that will get reflected in the difficulty score. So if you got athletes that, if you see them get above 200, Wow, those are those are great athletes to have because you know you can count on them. You can ask them to do things during your races. They're going to be able to just kind of uh, really step up and perform. Um, and that's really one of the markers of some of the great athletes is the ones that can handle greater difficulty. Yeah, but those DS uh, scores too. They, you know, the target isn't necessarily to always, you know, be the guy who can go for the highest values. Because again, if you're a time trialist. You are really, and you're trying to do a 40K flat time trial, you are trying to only hit your, your breakthrough effort at the very end. So for most of it, you're trying to ride right at, at threshold. So your actual difficulty score for that time trial isn't going to be that high as opposed to, again, if you're constantly sprinting, recovering, sprinting, recovering, which is a sign of in a time trial anyways possibly really bad pacing so you know don't get fixated that you always want to no. the highest difficulty <laughs> score for every ride or even when you're pacing an effort in a race because again a 40k flat time trial the last thing you want is a is a difficulty score of 200 at the end showing that you are really in a way pacing improperly right and you know we get a lot of the complaints even from users saying you know I, I did this it was the hardest ride i've ever done i rode for like four hours and it says you know it was moderate and it felt like it was the hardest ride well good thing right if you're going to mm -hmm. ride four or five hours you can't be doing that with your mpa down and trying to hold that for you won't be able to it's just it's impossible mm -hmm. right uh you're, you know, if you've paced it properly, like, you know, uh, like Stephen was saying, you're going to get the, um, you're going to get the right pacing, right? You kind of want to pace it so that you don't see these extreme difficulty scores and these really high difficulties because that means you didn't pace it right. And it, inevitably, you're going to see the highest difficulty near the beginning of these longer events if you're paced incorrectly. So if you see the difficulty goes, you know, you know, MPA coming down, your difficulty go up, and you've got four hours of racing to do. It's going to be a tough four hours. It's going to be a tough four hours. You know, yeah. by definition, that means you didn't pace it properly. Yeah, and there are also events and races where the difficulty score actually isn't that high. I know I look back at all my cyclocross races, even the ones that are 60 minutes long, my difficulty score often, and even my strain, XSS, doesn't necessarily 
go crazy high. I've never had a cross race of 60 minutes or even 40 minutes where my difficulty score is above 100 just because it's uh, so much on but also so much off as you are as you are turning around doing a 180 where you're coasting into a turn and all of that so you may be going really hard but you also have a lot of recovery so you know difficulty score again the highest isn't always the best it's not always just gunning to have the highest ds and again those those uh, road races I take part in and our St. Catharines Club rides, those generate really high uh, difficulty score for about the same 60-minute effort than compared to a 60-minute cross effort. So it's just because it's different. Mm-hmm. So don't always think, you know, my best workout was the highest one. It's the most appropriate. So use everything in the context. They are numbers. They are tools to help you diagnose kind of your racing demands and also kind of in a sense your training requirements for them too. Mm-hmm. I think uh, kind of building on that, we have actually a series of what we call hardness tests mm-hmm. uh, in the workout library. And, and what these tests allow you to do is, is each of them is set at a different, uh, has a different max difficulty score and a different XSS per hour. And so what these can do is they can shed some light on essentially how much you can suffer in an hour, uh, which I think provides a lot of insight into your mental status as an athlete because right. I think a lot of times early in the season when your training load is still much lower, it's going to be difficult to really generate that 150, 160 XSS per hour, whereas that might be more achievable uh, later in the season as you kind of cap out on hours. Right, and, and I think it's also reflective of how like some people just don't have the mental motivation to be on a trainer and really put themselves through through that much discomfort. But then you put them in a race situation and they do astronomical things, right? They're night and day compared to when they're, they're on a trainer. And a lot of people even know it. They say, yeah, you, you know, when I'm training on my own, I, I just don't have it. But, you know, put me in a race situation and, uh, you know, I'm prepared to really dig and dig deep. And so they, this is something that you can see and will show up in the data, right? You may not be able to do a great hardness test. You know, you may be, you may only be able to get to level seven or eight or something. Um, but then you put yourself in a race condition or race situation, you can see some extremely high difficulty scores. So, um, you know, it's a reflection of, of the type of training and type of racing that you're doing. Uh, you know what? How how well you match up with the demands of the race? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if you're over, if you're racing with a lot of people that aren't really at the same level, you might obviously not see much of a difficulty score uh, in those races. So, um, yeah, certainly something to evaluate, mm-hmm. and review, and understand better. All right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anything else that you guys want to talk about yet? I think the main thing is with training load just to remember that yeah, you you want to be as you get into the season getting ready for the season you want to be increasing it through both a combination of, of volume but also a bit of intensity but again don't think that you should be increasing your training load ad infinitum forever because you just simply can't can't you run out of hours so you also then once you really plateau in training load really start thinking about okay what is the proper mix of 
of workouts that's going to get me to the fitness. And with our adaptive training advisor, we kind of take that guesswork out for you. We say, you know, at the start, we're going to build your build mostly your lower energy uh, systems. And then as you get closer to the build and then the peak phase, we're going to become more and more specific. So you can set the training load so it doesn't change, but the mix is still going to change. So it's really, yeah, looking at things holistically that, that we try to quantify things in terms of exert strain score. And then we weight that towards training load. And then from there on, you know, there's more nuances with the difficulty score, with uh, the mix of distribution of, of training. And, and, uh, and then if any of you uh, can hit over 200 <laughs> difficulty <laughs> score, then definitely mm-hmm. post that in our exert user group on, uh, on Facebook and take my crown away from me. <laughs> I think that's a really, really good point, Stephen, mm-hmm. is the... Um you know, the, uh, the plateaus, right? And how sort of the flow of your training loads and how they kind of are part of the training that you do, right? And part of your life, right? Um, we can't, you can't continuously improve. So if you think about using the adaptive training advisor and set the improvement rate and it's always a positive number, it can't be. Right, you just can't improve. At some point, right? the deficit becomes too great. Yeah, right, you just don't have enough time in a day. And then, you know, and I've had even a you know customer say, you know, I just can't get. You know, you're right, you can't. You know, you there's just no more hours in the day. So you got to recognize that. And so the other important aspect is that you don't have to keep a high training load all the time, right? So training loads can be built, right? This is another thing. You don't necessarily want to have a training plan that's like six months long. Right, you don't need to build your training load. Doesn't have to be built over six months. It can be built in much less time. So knowing how long it takes you to kind of build up your training loads, especially the different types of training, the high, peak, and low, you recognize that it's okay to plateau and it's actually okay to lose a little bit of fitness, right? Because if you're not, there's no events that you're training for. It's actually a good time to allow your body to more fully recover, right? And give, mentally recharge. Yeah, mentally. Give your endocrine system a bit of a time, a bit of a break rather than having to be on, on uh, you know, full alert the whole time, right? So my 10 weeks of sitting on my butt while uh, waiting for my yeah. foot to heal, that was actually uh, giving myself a rest, okay. Yes. <laughs> that I haven't had in, you know, 30 plus years. And, you know, and, you know, I'm talking to various individuals about how the training loads and how they map to your fitness and your ability to perform. And are there kind of ways in which you can game it in the sense that, and I say game it in the sense, can you beat the system? Because the system is gonna say, yeah, your training load is what we're gonna expect you to be able to do, right? So there's an expectation as you train, you're gonna be able to perform better. And there's a mapping inside the software that allows you to do that. The question is, how do you beat that, right? Is there a way to train less and still get better fitness and better numbers, right? What's the mechanism by which that's done? Is it, is it rest? So some people have argued to say, yeah, if you give yourself a little bit of a rest, allow your training load to come down, as it comes back up again, it's, your numbers are going to improve. So there's some argument towards that. I haven't yet been able to, to prove that that exists in the data just yet, but that could be a, that could be a strong possibility. And all mm-hmm. of that means is that you're, it's okay to plateau. It's okay to allow your body to detrain, which is allow your numbers to come down. That's okay. And because you're, you have the capacity to bring them back up when you need to. 
So that horror, sort of all that ebb and flow is something that, you know, the, at least the software helps you kind of manage and understand. And that it's up to you to kind of optimize that for what you're trying to accomplish, right? If it's just maintain a level of fitness all year round, well, great. Then you're not really looking to, you know, set your improvement rate to seven to get ready for an event, right? Meanwhile, if you're, you know, getting prepared for some event, then yeah, you're going to want to change your improvement rates and boost your training load and preparation for that. Yeah, if you're doing a, but on the other hand, if you are doing something like a, you know, the, the tap de tour or one of these really ultra endurance rides, you, you have to maintain a certain level of training load. You mm -hmm. simply can't again, sit on the couch for 10 weeks like I have and then expect to be able to jump right in mm -hmm. to be able to do those. So you, there is kind of a, it depends on the, on the event that you are, you are aiming for what kind or what kind of that correct number for training load should be. If you are really going for one of these ultra endurance rides, you probably want to build as much training load as you can so that you can ride for five, six hours comfortably whereas if you are again in a cycle cross where it might be only 40 minutes depending or 35 minutes for your age group you don't need a massive training load to excel in that you mm -hmm. you probably that's probably counterproductive to it if all you're doing is long long hours on the bike and building up efforts that way whereas you want to be really sharp short sharp and punchy for those and that can happen with a much less in a sense base fitness and that's perfect for someone who goes who is more much more of a time crunched individual who doesn't have many hours to really just you know go and not necessarily max out their training load but max out the intensity for a very short brief period you so. see and you see that all the time with people who are coming off of their winter training right now with a propensity to be you know whether it's Zwift or you know, road grand tours or whatever, you know, they're on and they're, they're just smashing it. Right. And they're you know, lots of high intensity, but not really building a long base. And so when they come into the season in the spring, they don't have a lot, they don't have a base to, that they've built, right. They haven't been working on base. And so, yeah, they might be great in terms of these short kind of punchy efforts. Right. And so if the, if the races are kind of short, they're fine, but you put them on an extended ride and all of a sudden, you know, they just don't have the fitness to really sustain a high level of performance over those longer rides. They just haven't been training for that. Those that takes longer training. It takes volume. It takes more time. You need to build. You need to, you know, make that part of your training if you expect to you know, perform well in those types mm -hmm. of races. Yeah, I think uh, I think that was a great kind of summary there, and um, mm -hmm. just re rehashing what we uh, talked about today, and and that's uh, essentially training volume and and how Exert is able to give a little more insight on that whole intensity versus volume debate by uh, in looking at your strain second by second as you perform work and just uh, quantifying that and, and reporting that as part of your training load. Uh, so remember that your training load is going to be comprised of your low, your high, and your peak uh, strain. And so that allows us to look into kind of the polarity ratio or the ratio of, of low to high and peak that, that you're doing. And, um, and so we're able to do that quite accurately, which is great. Uh, we also talked about how difficulty score, score can be used, uh, mm -hmm. both not going too hard in a time trial or, or trying to uh, keep it low for an endurance ride because you don't want to bonk two hours into a, into a six or eight hour ride. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's uh, everything that I had for today. So 
Uh, thanks, uh, both of you, for joining me today, and yeah. thanks to all of our users for uh, coming back. Yeah. All right. Have a great day. Cheers.